suit up. You're listening to Are We There? Yep, the radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA needs new spacesuits. The agency wants to put people back on the moon in the 2020s, and to do it safely, it needs brand new spacesuits for use on the lunar surface. NASA is working with two private companies to design, develop, and build the new suits at a price point of up to $3.5 billion. But making a new lunar spacesuit isn't easy. We'll talk with space policy analyst Laura Forsick about the challenges ahead for new moon suits. Then, spacesuits have been around since the first human space missions in the 1960s. We'll speak with Smithsonian's Kathleen Lewis about the history of the spacesuit. Dressed for space? That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. NASA selected two commercial companies to design, develop, and build the next spacesuits for moonwalking astronauts. Axiom and Collins Aerospace will receive up to $3.5 billion for the order, and NASA hopes they'll have them ready to go by the mid-2020s. NASA hasn't needed moon suits for 50 years, and these designs will be vastly different from the ones used by Apollo astronauts, says NASA's Vanessa Weich, director of the Johnson Space Center. This is a historic day for us, and uh, the history will be made with these suits uh, when we get to the moon. Uh, we will have our first person of color and our first woman that will be wearers and users of these suits in space. So this is a very important day. During Apollo, moonwalkers were all men. For NASA's next moonshot, called Artemis, the program promises to put the first woman on the moon. And the spacesuits will be designed for a diverse core of astronauts, says Collins Aerospace's Dan Burbank. Create a suit that is compatible with the entire spectrum of crew members. So that commander of Artemis III, she may weigh 120 pounds on Earth. And so that, that she has got a suit that's appropriately sized and tailored for her that doesn't feel like a spacecraft but feels like a ruggedized set of extreme sport outerwear. That should be the goal. But designing a spacesuit isn't easy and could delay the program. To talk more about the challenges of spacesuit design and why NASA's Artemis mission depends on them, we're joined by space policy analyst Laura Forsick. Laura, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. Laura, what is the significance of this moment in the Artemis program. This has almost been a long time coming because NASA has been struggling with their spacesuit designs for about 15 years. And they have decided finally to get the help of the commercial industry. And so what's really exciting about this is that they are entrusting their spacesuit designs, just how they're entrusting their lander and the rockets that deliver cargo and crew to the space station. They're entrusting the commercial industry with this, which is something a little bit new. Mm -hmm. And it's a critical step for Artemis, right? I mean, if we're going to walk on the moon, we probably need a spacesuit to keep our astronauts safe, right? Oh, it's vital, right? We haven't had anybody step on the surface of another planetary body since the Apollo era. And not only that, but the spacesuits that astronauts use on the International Space Station are quite old. They were developed in 1983, which is older than you and I, Brendan. So that's how old these spacesuits are. They're not well uh, fitting. They do not fit all astronauts. So so even if Artemis wasn't even a program, even if NASA was not planning to walk on the moon, we still need new spacesuits for the future of human spaceflight. Tell me a bit about why is it so difficult to, to make these suits and, and what went into the decision by NASA to kind of farm this out to the commercial sectors? 
spacesuits are complex. They need to have a steady pressure. They need to provide oxygen and take out carbon dioxide. They need to um, not leak water, which has been a major problem recently with the spacesuits that currently exist. Um, they have a water coolant system, and they actually have water sipping for astronauts to, to drink. Um, and so many other functions, um, protecting against radiation, micrometeorites. I mean, there's so many things that goes into a spacesuit, not to mention mover, maneuverability. So if you imagine those videos from the Apollo astronauts bouncing on the moon, hopping like bunnies, that was actually because the spacesuits didn't fit them very well. It was really hard to move. They couldn't bend knees. And the astronauts who do spacewalks now outside the International Space Station, those extravehicular activities, EVAs, those are actually really painful for astronauts because of the way that the suits don't fit them very well, especially the gloves. They're just hard to move and there's a lot of pressure in the wrong places and astronauts get injuries from these spacesuit uh, spacewalks. And so what we need is something that is not only going to protect astronauts and do the basic function of keeping them alive, but is also going to fit them well and is something that they can work in for long periods of time. You mentioned that the, these suits are vital for these lunar operations, um, and NASA's finally making the decision to do this. But I mean, NASA wants to land humans on the moon by the mid-2020s. These are really difficult pieces of technology to develop and test. Is this actually going to happen in time, or or will the spacesuits be the reason why some of these ambitious timelines of landing humans on the moon in, in the 2025-2026 timeline going to actually happen? It's almost like that phrase, we'll get there when we get there, right? The timeline goes out the window when it comes to these vital hardware. Um, the lander, the lander is another thing that is, is going to be delayed. Um, and that's because the commercial industry wasn't awarded the timing and the funding for it. And the same thing here with these spacesuits, except there's actually quite a bit of funding going into this, but the timing. Um, NASA probably could have awarded these contracts years ago. And so there is a organization that has looked at NASA programs and it, within NASA, it's an organization that um, is a government agency that's independent of NASA, but still within NASA that says that, yeah, NASA waited a bit too long. <laughs> they dragged their feet on this. And so this is actually going to be one of those things that delays the return of astronauts to the surface of the moon, along with several other hardware pieces that are just going slowly. Uh, and so it's a crucial reason why we need to look ahead and plan ahead when we do these grand projects, these grand missions that have so many moving parts, so many complexities. We need to make sure that we plan ahead and give the adequate time and also the funding. So if NASA is doing it internally or even externally here in this case, we need to make sure that we have the funding available for NASA to award these contracts. And Laura, how do you test something like this? I mean, this is as you mentioned, this is intricate, technologically challenging, and you know the lunar surface is quite harsh, and these these things need to protect the astronauts. So how do you how do you test a new technology like this before putting somebody in it and dropping them on the surface of the moon? There are some great analogs. We call them um, space analogs. So we out go out into deserts or extreme environments. There's even big pits of lunar regolith simulant, lunar regolith being the dirt and dust. So the dirt and dust on the moon, we we have big boxes, apparently like sandboxes kind of things of this kind of um place that we can test it. And that's really cool, not only for the rovers that we usually test in those kinds of boxes, but also for the people who are going to be walking around in these suits, whether they're the astronauts who are chosen or people who are testing the suits ahead of time. Um, and so making sure that these suits are comfortable, that they fit properly. These suits that were contracted out 
they are going to fit the fifth uh, percentile woman and the 95th percentile man. So covering quite a large range while keeping in mind that still leaves out some people who are on the extremes as well as some people with disabilities. So that's something to think of for the future. But in any case, we're going to be trying to have these suits fit a large number of people and in a wide variety. So not just the lunar surface, but also just the vacuum of space, replacing the International Space Station suits with with these new suits. And that might be two separate suits, or it might be the same suit with two configurations. Um, it's going to be up to the companies to decide. And, and finally, Laura, you mentioned this at the start of our conversation that, you know, this is NASA making the switch and relying on the private sector to provide a service um, to provide these suits, the design and the development of it. Is this kind of more steps forward towards the commercialization of space? And is this kind of helping NASA get into that mindset that, you know, commercial industry is going to take over a large portion of our activity in space? And this is just one step towards that goal. One thing I find interesting about this contract is that uh, Collins Aerospace with LC Dover, they have a long history in spacesuits. They've been working on spacesuits with NASA for years. The current NASA spacesuits are a product of those two companies. Whereas Axiom Space is a newcomer. Axiom actually is not only working on the International Space Station with its uh, space station segment and also its private astronaut missions, they also plan to have their own space station. So the Axiom leadership has said that they were going to build spacesuits anyway, just like how space, uh, SpaceX and other companies have been designing their own spacesuits outside of NASA. So it's really two different ways of operating, one within NASA's requirements and one saying we were going to do this anyway. Laura Forsick is a space policy analyst and the founder of the consulting firm Astrolytical. Laura, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Still to come, a look back at the history of spacesuits, including the efforts to preserve Neil Armstrong's Apollo 11 suit with Smithsonian's Kathleen Lewis. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. Since the dawn of human spaceflight, astronauts have relied on spacesuits to keep them alive. But since those first suits that were worn by people like Yuri Gagarin and Alan Shepard, they've undergone many changes, spurred in part by the space race between the U.S. and Soviet Union. Charting that change is Smithsonian historian Kathleen Lewis, the curator of international space programs and spacesuits at the Smithsonian Institute's National Air and Space Museum. She spoke with Are We There Yet's Caroline Brockler about the history of the spacesuit. What did those early spacesuits look like from the beginning of the space race and, and maybe even before? Well, the Soviet era suits are, have a much more interesting history. They date back much further. Their first pressure suits um, they had designed for the use in some of their ballooning experiments, their high altitude ballooning experiments during the 1930s. They learned very quickly that that was one of the major hazards to life for high altitude ballooning is that the gondola would lose pressure and the the explorers would die so they they manufactured spacesuits and remarkably the organization the laboratory that designed those spacesuits continues on until this day it's currently called um, the joint stock company 
Zvezda, um, but it, there's been this straight line. So they've been very consistent. They've not had the competition um, for spacesuit designs for specific projects that we have witnessed here in the United States, but they have continued and more iterative process. So if you look at, for example, the spacesuit that Yuri Gagarin wore, his launch and entry suit um, for his first flight, it is remarkably similar on the inside and its operation, not to the the naked eye, um, to the suits, the launch and entry suits that Russian um, cosmonauts and others who fly on board the Soyuz spacecraft to access the International Space Station wear today. Um, just its sealing technique is the same, and it's been fairly consistent. Um, one thing that is very important to remember is that because spacesuit engineers and technicians are dealing with human life, they are remarkably conservative in their adaptation of new technologies and materials. They don't want to take any sort of leap that might might cause a loss of life. So they, if something works well, they will continue to use it. And when they're even when they're looking for new things, they will look back and see what others have done in the past and how that worked before they they take that next step. Mm-hmm. And how did those first steps influence maybe the suits worn by uh, those on the Apollo missions? Well, the suits on the Apollo missions were a great departure from what previous suits had been. Um, on the American side, we, we had developed pressure suits for pilots, both high altitude pilots, of course, you, you know of the history of, of the, um, the X-planes and those high altitude missions, um, but also with fighter pilot missions. Um, so this is largely focused on the Air Force and the Navy. Um, fighter pilots need pressure suits, anti-gravity suits, in order to maneuver around and not have their blood end up pooling um, in their legs and away from their brains and losing consciousness. And that that need came into full view when um, both both sides of the Cold War, but also both sides of, of any sort of military flight realized that they were using jet aircraft that were going at much higher speeds and were much more maneuverable. So the hazard of having blood pooling was much greater. So they had to design pressure suits. Those suits were adapted for the space program. First, the Navy's Mark IV suit, um, which had been made by B.F. Goodrich, was adapted to the Mercury program. Um, then the Air Force's high-altitude suits, which they had used, and you've, you've seen them on movies and popular culture, the, those silver pressure suits um, that were uh, made by the David Clark Company were adapted to the Mercury program. Those suits were not spacesuits in the uh, most refined definition of the of the term. Uh, these were launch and entry suits. They were designed to be backup suits in in the event that something in the systems, the life support systems of the spacecraft fail. 
designing a suit that would actually operate out in open space was the next step of, of creating a space suit. First for the Gemini and Vassad program, the first spacewalks that occurred. Um, and in order to adapt those suits, both, both the Soviets and the Americans adapted their current in use suits, added extra insulation to protect against radiation and, and fast um, moving particles, and also added either a, a tether, an umbilical cord that allowed them to receive oxygen, um, remove carbon dioxide and also allowed com communications or a backpack equipped with with um, an oxygen tank. Um, they were very preliminary and they didn't take into account things that we really didn't understand and know. We, we tested both sides, tested these suits under simulated um, situations, both in in microgravity and using a parabol a plane um, following a parabolic arc. They used them in pressure chambers. But what they did not realize is that inside a spacesuit, which is nothing more than being inside a rubber bag, um, if your blood pressure and heart rate raise and you're in this sealed environment, the pressure inside the, the suit is going to increase as the temperature rises. In the case of, of the first spacewalkers, Alexei Leonov and, and Ed White, um, but in both cases, their body temperature heated up and their suits became rigid. Leonov more famously had to do more intricate maneuvers to get back into his spacecraft and had a harder time getting in because his suit became very stiff and rigid um, from that added pressure. Ed White had the advantage that his spacecraft was open so he could be guided back into his seat. And it wasn't until later when Gene Cernan um, on Apollo, on Gemini 9, I'm sorry, Gemini 9, um, was actually trying to do maneuvers and activities that he became so overheated, his helmet fogged up and he couldn't see. And he was floating blind, and had it not been for his commander, Tom Stafford, to guide him back into his seat, he would not have been able to do that for himself. Um, and that began the advent of the use of the liquid cooling garment, which was a technology that the British had, had first developed and explored for their fighter uh, pilots. And it's basically a set of long underwear with tubes running through it, um, throughout the body, and those tubes um, are pumped, uh, cool water is pumped through them to cool the body and um, to take away the heat from the body and ex dispose of it outside of the spacesuit. And the liquid cooling technology, that liquid cooling garment technology is in use today as we speak on both the um, Soviet side and the Russian side and on the American side. And in fact, they, they have, they're almost identical in technology. And you were also part of an effort to preserve Neil Armstrong's suit from the Apollo 11 missions, correct? Um, what was that like? Yes. Well, seven years ago, and it's hard to believe it's been seven years. Um, 
my colleague, Lisa Young, who's our, our deputy head chief conservator at the Air and Space Museum, and I have been thinking of ways to expand our knowledge on the preservation of spacesuits. Spacesuits, as I said, are, are the these human form spacecraft, and they are they rely on existing textiles, or the, at the time, the, the contemporary textiles that were available and, and in use at the time to protect astronauts. Um, and they were designed to protect an astronaut in that harsh environment of space. Unfortunately, they can protect an astronaut in a harsh environment of space for a short period of time, but they were not designed to last here on Earth in our own harsh environments very well. They don't respond, the materials do not respond to high degrees of, of humidity or just relatively high, continuously high temperatures. And if you look at spacesuits where they're built, where the Apollo spacesuits were built, where they were tested, where they were used, and where they were stored, we're talking about Del coastal Delaware, Houston, Texas, the Cape in Florida, and Washington, D.C., about the four hottest, most humid places that you can think of in the continental United States. Um, and as a result, um, we noticed deterioration. And in fact, we, around the turn of the century, we made the decision to remove Neil Armstrong's suit from display because it was beginning to show signs of aging. The materials were off-gassing, interacting, and we really wanted to save it before it was too late. And as part of the plan was to find a way to investigate the best conditions under which to display it. We had already discovered that a low, a relatively low temperature, about 60 degrees Fahrenheit, and a low relative humidity of less than 30% relative humidity was the ideal stable environment. Now you can't reproduce that, you know, except in, in certain office spaces in, in downtown centers, um, you don't really have those conditions. But our, our goal was to find a way to replicate that um, and document the condition of Neil Armstrong's suit as best we could, given the, what, the current technology that had not been on, available to us years before when we investigated the storage conditions. And as by coincidence, the Smithsonian was considering embarking on a new type of fundraising using um, a, a group fundraising. Um, they entered into an agreement with Kickstarter and thus became our Reboot the Suit project. This, this project was to preserve, digitize, and display Neil Armstrong spacesuit. And we um, digitized the spacesuit through thanks to the operations of the Smithsonian's um, uh, uh, digitization program office. They were, have available very high-resolution cameras. Um, we used um, the National um, Museum of Natural History's uh, CT scanner to do radial um, x-rays through the suit to look at how it's holding up on the inside. And we also drew on the expertise of 
our colleagues who work at the National Zoo and use portable x-ray machines to teach us how to use a portable x-ray machine to take x-rays and, and fine resolution x-rays, which um, far exceed our standards of doing um, wet x-rays, which we had done a, about a decade prior to that. So we, we digitized the suit. Um, we designed a case, a special case, and a display mannequin that would allow free airflow within the suit um, and would also maintain that temperature and humidity that we had found so ideal for storage conditions. And then on the 20th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing, we put the suit on display for the world to see. Um, it was on display in the Wright Brothers Gallery for um, up until a few months ago. It will be back on display this fall in the museum's new Destination Moon Gallery, which will tell the story about the Apollo, uh, the Apollo moon landing within the contents of the world's fascination with the moon. Um, and it will open in the fall of this year. That's incredible. That's definitely something that we can look forward to. Oh, yes. We're, we're very excited. Every week we get pictures on the progress of installing this new gallery. Um, it's very exciting. And then uh, before we go, is there anything else about your work or about your studies that you would like for our listeners to know? Well, as I said, the, um, the spacesuit designers are very, very conservative, but they also have to be very forward looking, um, especially today. They are they have to design a suit not only that functions with the human body, but also fulfills the mission of the program, whatever program they're going to work with. You design a spacesuit for working on an international space station and doing that sort of, of hardware interaction, technical work on the outside of a space station very differently from the way you design a suit that will explore um, the moon or asteroids or Mars. Um, and you have to work closely together, not only with, with material scientists, but also with geologists who understand the morphology of, of the, the soil that, that um, astronauts are going to be working with. We learned a great deal from our experience with Apollo, and we're still learning from those lunar samples that were brought back. Uh, we're hoping that we will have Martian samples come back so we will understand how that Martian dirt will interact with the materials on the surface of the moon. And in fact, there is an, ex an experiment going on on the surface of Mars and exposing materials that we think we might use um, in suits um, to that Martian environment, just to see how they age, how they wear, because it's going. You can't you can't run down to the hardware store and get replacement parts really quickly when you're on Mars. You've got to plan in advance, plan and see which materials wear out more quickly, what needs to be replaced, how much you have to pack when you send people off off to Mars. Excellent. Well, thank you, Dr. Lewis, for speaking to us. We really appreciate your insight here. I'm very happy to do it. That was Smithsonian's Kathleen Lewis speaking with Are We There Yet's Caroline Brockler. 
That's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. You can get on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Our intern is Caroline Brockler. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. Thank you.